Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. I'm Mackenzie Britton, producer for the podcast, and happy to bring you this latest episode. Today, we are joined by our friend Reverend Derek Harris, preaching from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, as we embark on our continued journey through the Lent season. Check it out now on Bothell Amplified. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on the divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Holy words for God's people. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with all of you. Those that do not know, I am Derek Harris. I was standing there awkwardly like I was being auctioned off for like the bride or something. You know, hey, here's this young bachelor. Let me tell you all about him. (laughs) You know, it's because I came up at the wrong time. Hey, but it is good to be here with all of you. Um, I think we've got a challenging word. I think we've got a good word. And if you give me some time and your attention, I won't be before you long. Now, you don't know me, but that's already funny because I'm Baptist. <laughs> um, and, you know, we like to stretch things out. We don't do anything quick. We like to take the scenic way, you know. So give me about 45 minutes. <laughs> no, I'll be, I'll be much shorter than that. Hey, I uh, want to thank uh, Pastor Joe for this invitation to come and be with you all on this day. It truly is a, a pleasure and a blessing to be with you. Won't you pray with me? Gracious God, who is God? We thank you for this time today. Be with us in the places we need you, the places we want you, in the places we unexpect your presence to show up. This is our prayer and our hope. Amen. Amen. You might be able to tell, too, from my nasal congestion. I got a little thing that, you know, that's dripping in the back of my throat. Don't worry, I'm not going to sneeze on you. Um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty far back. Uh, but I have my coffee. This is, this is my liquid gold. It assists me with the various things of life. Colombian bean, the Brazilian bean, the Kenyan and Ethiopian. These are my friends. Okay, I wanted to take you back. I want to take you back to March 28th in 1968. I was there. <laughs> but I want to take you back to March 28th in 1968. I want to take you back to several years after King's Montgomery bus boycott. 
the passing of the Civil Rights Act, his winning of the Nobel Peace Prize, the passing of the Voting Rights Act. It was a time when King had shifted his focus toward economic justice. And he and his leaders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they visited Memphis, Tennessee to lead a protest in support of sanitation workers. Sanitation workers who were fighting for three things, fair wages, safe working conditions, and union recognition. 6,000 people showed up at that protest, but unfortunately, a riot broke out by some people who didn't hold King's same vision, same moral clarity, same sense of mission. Looting then filled the streets, physical violence ensued, and a mix-up of all of that a police officer shot and killed a 17-year-old boy. And that young boy's death escalated the already growing tensions in Memphis at the time. And as a result, King's team quickly took King back to Atlanta. And they warned him not to return to Memphis any time soon. But the idea of running away from what he had understood to be his call it didn't settle with his soul. Threats. Against the death threats and against the advice from his staff and against the suggestion of his followers and even the local news reporter who had announced that there was a big storm approaching, Dr. King traveled back, back to Memphis, Tennessee, to be at that striking sanitation workers rally. Why, do you ask? Well, because King believed in the cause and call that he carried. For King, this was a call of participation in liberation and solidarity with the suffering. It was a call even louder than his own interior echoes for personal security and safety and longevity. And when King eventually traveled back to Memphis, Tennessee, on April 3rd at the Mason Temple, he delivered a speech, a speech that will go down in history forever throughout the pages and tapestry of time. It's now called, and maybe you're familiar with it, his eulogizing sermon. During that speech, he spoke about the role of unity, economic action in the history of civil rights struggle. But near the end of that speech, something unexpected happened. Nearing the end of that speech, it took a twist. It took a turn. His eyes begin to alter. His cadence and the rhythm of his speech begin to change. And it was as though he was looking into the pages of beyond. And he there sat back and said, like anybody, I desire to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. My desire is to do God's will in less than 24 hours. King was dead. He was assassinated. Like anybody that desire to live a long life, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. My desire is to do God's will, fold curtain. And that's the very last word he says. And within 20, less than 24 hours later, King is dead. And as history would have it, there he is, shot dead at the Lorraine Hotel, assassinated. When we review this tragic event against the backdrop of Jesus's uh, conversation recorded in Mark's gospel, the parallels are striking. 
On the one hand, King's followers refused to lean into the call that King so desperately felt within him. They did everything in their power to deter, dissuade, and to change his mind toward what he believed was right. And on the other hand, we have Jesus and his disciples. They are preparing them for the in in. He is preparing them for the inevitable end of his earthly ministry. And Peter and the others, they aim to convince Jesus to pursue a fate outside of purpose. And in both cases, here are these two leaders. They, are, they resist the influence and lean into the resolute paths that they acknowledged before them. They were unwavering in their commitments, sure in their causes and in their crosses that they were made to take up and carry. You know, I think most of you would agree with me that the lessons of this text are difficult. They are difficult. They're difficult to do. They're difficult to live into. They are hard. They are difficult in many ways. They are difficult to hear. If any of you would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross, follow me. For those who want to save their lives, you lose it. But if you, want to, but if you lose your life for my sake and for the name of the gospel, you will save it. What profited a man or a woman to gain the world and lose their, their soul or forfeit their life? And those who are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Before my Father in heaven when he comes with a whole host of angels. You see, these lessons, the lessons of this text are difficult because they force each of us to confront our natural finitude. They force us to confront the reality of our natural biological condition, that we are all on borrowed time. There are, it's a hard lesson here. It's a hard lesson. It's a difficult lesson because they force each of us to reevaluate our priorities, our values, and our commitments. They're hard. They're hard lessons because they require personal sacrifice in a world that celebrates personal fulfillment. It's a hard lesson. It's a difficult lesson because they call us to action without giving deference to self-preservation. These are difficult lessons because Jesus makes ask that are counterintuitive, countercultural, and invites each of us to let go of human concerns and to tap into the mysteries, wonders, and advances of the kingdom of God. God's agenda, not human concerns. And like Peter, we are challenged to make a choice. A choice. Will we serve human agenda? The human agendas of this world are the purposes of God. Will we give ourselves to the cause of Christ? It's, it's, a hard, it's, a, it's a hard passage. It's a hard passage because it reaches out to each of us like the tentacles of sea creatures. And once it latches on, it interrogates our motives and asks us those challenging questions. Who do you really say that I am? On the one hand, there's the Lord. But on the other hand, there's provider. If you're Lord, you're Lord of all. Who do you really say I am? Do you say that I'm Lord or do you say that I'm the get out of jail free card? Who do you say I am? Am I Lord? And if I'm Lord, I'm Lord of everything. Or do you say that I'm the moralistic therapeutic deist that soothes your concerns when you can't sleep at night and you think that boogeyman's coming from you under the bed? Am I Lord or am I fixer? 
Who do you say I am? It's a hard text because we know this text isn't about Peter. It's not about the disciples. Guess who it's about? It's about you. It's not about me. No, no. It's, a, it's about me. <laughs> it's about me too. It's about you. It's about me. After all, Jesus is talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the disciples and to Peter. He actually told Peter to shut up a while ago and hasn't talked to him since he called him Satan. Remember that? At this moment, he's now talking to the crowd. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. It's a hard text. If any wish to become or rather wish to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cause. I'll touch on that a little later. Take up their cause and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, they in for the sake of the gospel, they will save it. You see, for the majority of this pericope, Jesus is talking to a crowd. Jesus isn't talking to Peter since he once again told him to be quiet some time ago. So on the one hand, it's a hard text because um, we must make a decision about what kind of people we want to be. But on the other hand, it's a hard text because it invites us to be like Christ, giving ourselves over to the least of these. The exploited, the forgotten, the discarded, and the thrown away within our society. This text shows us that Jesus was committed to giving his life and work even unto death. Church, let me ask you a question. Who are the people and where are the places that God is calling each of you to take up a cause for? Who are the people? Where are the places that God is inviting you to participate in God's reconciling mission in the church and in the world? For me, I got to be honest, this passage, this, this passage, it brings to mind the current issues that are on the forefront of our nation's most highest offices, and particularly in Louisiana just this week. I find it hard and disingenuous to talk about us carrying crosses and not speak to the metal crucifixes that don't hang vertically, but that lie horizontal in our death row prisons. It's hard to talk about the cross of Christ and not execution of prisoners. After all, the cross is not an instrument we wear around our neck. The cross is an instrument of devastation. The cross is an instrument of crucifixion. The cross is an instrument of state-sanctioned execution. And just this week, Oh I'm, oh, I'm in the text. It's, it's right there. And just this week in Louisiana, there are policies and bills that are being presented in not just the Senate, but in the House. It just passed within the House. To lower the age of execution to 17 years old. Just this week. Just this week. This has just passed. Just this week. Just yesterday. There's a bill that aims to reinstate oxygen deprivation. Just this week. There is a bill that aims to reinstate electrocution just this week. In that chair that they used in Louisiana, guess where it currently sits? It's in Louisiana Prison Museum in the Cultural Center as an archaic relic for us to think about the past. You see, this practice of execution has been outlawed in other states like Georgia and Nebraska because state constitutions in these places find it as cruel and unusual punishment. 
And in, a, and in addition to those laws, just this week, there is the proposal to eliminate parole for all prisoners after August 1. But somewhere I read, somewhere I read to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. Somewhere I read mercy triumphs over judgment. Somewhere I read remember those in prison as if you were with them in prison. Somewhere I read do not overcome, do not be overcome, overcome evil with good. As followers of Jesus who himself suffered under the cruelty of the death penalty, we are called to take up our commitment, neighborly love, and build toward the beloved community whenever we see injustice. We are called to take up and to tear down the systems of suffering and the mechanisms of maintenance that perpetuate them. It is our moral imperative to advocate for a justice system that aligns the values of redemption, reconciliation, and transformative power of mercy. This, I'm, I'm in the text. So if it's hard, if it's a hard text because we must make the decision about the kind of people we want to be, and if it's a hard text because it invites us to be like Christ, giving ourselves the least of these, well, it's also a hard text because a healthy understanding of this it requires a certain level of interrogation and self-reflection. You see, it's most certainly true that the faithful response to God's call doesn't guarantee ease. It doesn't guarantee surplus. It doesn't mean you'll have an unfettered senses of accomplishment, achievement, and self-actualization. But it is equally true that Christ doesn't need any of us as secondary saviors. I, I want to say that again. Church, Christ doesn't need you as a secondary savior. Your call is not to suffer. That's not what this text is getting at. As a matter of fact, it's Emerson Powery, the professor of biblical studies at Messiah College. He touches on this in his commentary on Mark, and he states this. Jesus, quote, Jesus' words do not mean we are to suffer for the sake of suffering or that there is redemptive value in suffering in itself. Womenist theologians have rightfully warned us against such spiritual notions, which we can also call satanic ideas full of abusive potential, end quote. You see, through this statement, Emerson dispels theological myths and interpretations that, that are oppressive to the minds, the psyches, and the bodies of the vulnerable. And here, affirming that the Christian lot in life is not misery, it's not sub subservient sacrifices, it's not purposeless suffering. Nowhere in this text does Jesus invite his followers to become martyrs. But what he does insist on is that they deny themselves and be prepared to offer themselves completely, wholly, and fully if it should be required to remain true to their faith. The reason why I, wanted, why, I, why I talked about taking up causes and not crosses is because there's, let me be honest, there's some people here that you believe that to be closer to God, you got to give up everything that you got. You got to say yes, you have to do it again. You got to keep putting yourself out there. That's not what Christ is calling us to. Suffering without an end is just a life beyond the scope of what 
beyond that abundant life that Jesus came that you might live, experience in the end, and have more fully. We have to interrogate what this text is saying. Let me do something here. Earlier I talked about how much I love this coffee. And, uh, and I truly do. Coffee is, coffee is, my, coffee is my life. Um, one day I'm going to own a coffee shop. I already got it. It's called Hannah's House. Ask me about that later. Um, but I want you, but I've been in a lot of coffee shops. And this is what I've learned. You go into any coffee shop for five minutes and people already know where you've been. They don't ask to ask what you had to drink, how long you stayed. They can smell the aroma of the Kenyan, Colombian, Ethiopian, Brazilian coffee bean. It literally seeps into your clothing like a slow-moving fog over the hills in the morning that sits just beneath your nose. They don't have to ask you where you've been, what you had to drink. They know that that's an Americano. They know it. They know that you had that you know, that double whatever that thing, you know, they know it. They know it when you get up close in their face and you ask them with all that airy breath of yours, how you doing? <laughs> they know it. They know where you've been. There's simply a residue of the experience. There's a lingering aroma that hangs on to your clothes like a child hanging on to the coattail of their father in the dark. There's a residue of the experience. You know, I think about Circling back to King, King was dead, assassinated April 4th, 1968, Memphis, Tennessee. But two weeks after his assassination, there was a residue, a residue of his authentic encounter with a God that challenged him to go beyond and to do more and to live a life more fully and freely. Because even after he was dead, that thing that he was fighting for, that, uh, that sanitation worker strike, all those things, even that he was fighting for, they came to pass. It was on April 16th, 1968, that finally the, uh, they were able now to get fair wages. They had, uh, they had, had um, agreements on recognizing the union. There was also agreements on uh, safe working conditions. Church, here's my question. What is the cause that you're so committed to that long after you leave this place, people know that there is a linger of your effectiveness for the kingdom and purposes of God because you've been so committed to that thing that you don't have to be around to see it play out, but you recognize that, Lord, I'll go when you tell me to go. I'll move when you say me, when you tell me to move. I'll do what you say do, and I'm open, willing, available, and secure enough to know that you will bring me through even till the end. It's not a call to suffer, but it's a call to active, to activation. It's a call to initiation, and that initiation is an ability to participate in the liberation, in the, in the eradication, here's another alliteration, of the suffering systems and the mechanisms of maintenance that propel injustice. What is God, what are the causes, not crosses, that God is, take, is, is challenging you to live into, to pick up, and to take on? These are our questions for us in this week. And it is my hope that you will live more fully and free, freely into where you might be more effective in the purposes of God. Won't you pray with me? 
Gracious God, who is God, be with us on this journey. I'm reminded of the song that says, the journey, the journey, the journey is long. The journey, the journey, the journey is long. It's a long journey, a journey toward righteousness, effectiveness in the purposes of God. But your promise is that you will be with us every step of the way. Let us lean freely, fully, and with a commitment and audacity to believe that we can be, oh, the arbiters of hope, of liberation, that is called to take up the causes and to tear down the systems of suffering. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.